Hello and welcome to The Woman Who. I'm Zowie Ashton, and in this series, I'll be bringing you the remarkable stories of Britain's most inspirational women of the last 140 years. These are the tales of the true pioneers of music, literature, the performing arts and fashion. Women who have defied convention, broken boundaries, and pushed the limits of what's possible. I'll be taking a deep dive into the lives of these trailblazers, reliving their struggles and setbacks, their loves and losses, and how they overcame every obstacle in their path to achieve unimaginable success. These women are the real deal, the true influencers of their day. And this is the tale of the woman who took centre stage in Victorian Britain, renowned Shakespearean actress, artist muse, and the Meryl Streep of her day, Ellen Terry. One evening at the Princess's Theatre in London in 1856, a nine-year-old Ellen Terry was delighting audiences in the role of Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream when disaster struck. The exuberant child with fair hair and large expressive eyes had just come up through the trap door when it slammed shut a moment too soon and broke her toe. To the great shock of the audience, she screamed bloody murder. Her older sister Kate, playing Titania in the same production, rushed over to help her. So did the theatre's beloved but slightly terrifying matron, Mrs. Keane, who instead of offering comfort, made her a deal. Finish the play, dear, she whispered, and I'll double your salary. Ellen gritted her teeth and carried on, delivering the last monologue of the show through waves of pain. It went a little like this. If we shadows have offended, oh, Katie, Katie, think but this and all is mended. Oh, my toe, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. I can't, I can't. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream. Oh dear, oh dear. Gentles do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. Oh, Mrs. Keene. It wasn't perfect, but it got the job done. Though only a child, Ellen already knew the cardinal rule of theatre. The show must go on, especially for double pay. Born in 1848 in Coventry, Ellen was always destined for the stage. Her parents were travelling actors, and to them, having children was a convenient way of expanding their theatre troupe. Of their nine offspring, Trained in the art of elocution as soon as they could speak, six went on to make their parents proud as actors in their own right. Roaming across Britain in search of work, Ellen's parents would stash their babies backstage or in nearby accommodation during the evening's performance at the theatre. One day, while Ellen's mother was in the middle of a scene, news arrived of a fire at the family's lodgings. She rushed out of the theatre and down the street, where she rescued her children from the burning building 
and made it back just in time to perform in the next act. Ellen's first role was Mamilius in A Winter's Tale. Rehearsals ran seven days a week and sometimes deep into the night, and an exhausted Ellen would often sneak away to sleep behind the sets. But she never forgot the delight of receiving her script for the very first time. Bound in green cloth, she said, it looked to me more marvelous than the most priceless book has ever looked since. Ellen never had a formal day of schooling, but learned everything she knew about the world from her work as a young actress. She loved exploring Britain as a teenager, putting on shows with her family up and down the country, saying she tasted the joys of the strolling player's existence without its miseries. When she was only 16, Ellen married the neurotic but brilliant artist George Frederick Watts, whom she had met while modeling for one of his paintings with her sister. He was 30 years her senior. It was a poor match, and they separated after 10 months. But her marriage to George had introduced Ellen to a fascinating circle of artists and intellectuals, from the poet Alfred Tennyson to future Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. Still just a teenager and in need of money, Ellen returned to the stage. But just a few years later, she would abandon it again, running off to the countryside with a new lover, the architect Edward William Godwin. In their romantic escape from London, however, the pair neglected to tell anyone where they were going. Ellen's family thought she was dead when a young woman's body was pulled from the River Thames, who looked remarkably similar to their beloved daughter. Reading the news of her own demise, Ellen rushed back to London to assure her family that she was very much alive. She had merely retired from the stage. Ellen spent six blissful years in the countryside with Edward, giving birth to a boy and a girl, freed from the relentless work of an actor. She later wrote, For the first time, I was able to put all my energies into living. But money was tight and a constant source of stress on her relationship and her happiness. When a dramatist offered Ellen a salary she couldn't refuse to perform in his new play, she returned once more to London and to the stage. Though she had worked as an actor since childhood, it was Ellen's portrayal of Portia in an 1875 production of The Merchant of Venice that made her a household name. It was a transcendent performance, which Ellen regarded as the very pinnacle of her acting career. As she described it, never until I appeared as Portia had I experienced that awestruck feeling, which comes, I suppose, to no actress more than once in a lifetime, the feeling of the conqueror. Unfortunately for Ellen, the actor cast to play the leading man was utterly rubbish, and the show closed after just a few weeks. But Ellen had already become a star in her own right. 
1878, she joined the theatre company of Henry Irving, an actor whose dark hair, prominent brow, and pale skin would later inspire the character of Dracula. Over the next 20 years, she commanded the stage as Britain's foremost Shakespearean leading lady, delighting audiences with her magnetic charm and comic timing at the Lyceum Theatre. Though Ellen and Henry denied a romantic relationship throughout their creative partnership, Ellen conceded after his death that they were terribly in love for a while. The story of Ellen's life was never without a romantic subplot. In the 1890s, Ellen began a correspondence with the playwright George Bernard Shaw, what he called a paper courtship. Though they never met for the first nine years of their exchange, the two wrote letters to each other every few days about the state of the world, theatre, and their relationship, creating one of the great correspondences in the history of the English language. George wrote to her, Keep on loving me, if you ever did, my Ellenist. Love me hard, love me soft, and deep, and sweet, and forever and ever and ever. But Ellen, years older and more experienced in matters of love, was more circumspect. I've never been admired or loved properly, but one and a half times in my life, and I am perfectly sick of loving. All on one side isn't fair. Years later, George commented on his correspondence with Ellen. A clever woman's most amusing toys are interesting men. Ellen's career stretched over an astonishing 70 years, just long enough to appear in some of the earliest silent films. But as a stage actress, her greatest performances are lost to time. Ellen understood this and wrote that actors are sometimes told that we live too much in the public eye and enjoy too much public favor and attention. But at least we make up for it by leaving no trace of our short and merry reign behind us when it's over. If you know where to look, though, Ellen's legacy lives on. Oscar Wilde wrote poems about her as Portia, and John Singer Sargent painted her as a beautiful but sinister Lady Macbeth, now on display at the Tate Britain. Over the course of her life, Ellen rose from being a poor traveling actor to become Dame Ellen Terry and one of the most beloved celebrities of her time. Her performances inspired a renewed interest in Shakespeare in Victorian society, one which has endured to this day. She led a life dedicated to art, passion and beauty and will forever be remembered as one of the most legendary actors in British history. The Woman Who podcast series has been brought to you by Fenwick, the UK's department store of distinction since 1882. 
Tune in each week to uncover the story of a new inspirational woman and head to fennec.co.uk for more info and celebrations on their 140th anniversary of empowering women through the circus of life. The Woman Who is a Radio Wolfgang production written by Hannah Jewell and read by me, Zowie Ashton. The producer is Kieran Carruthers, sound designers by Tony Onachuku, and the executive producer is Ellie DiMartino. Martino.